morning. For those of you visiting with us, we have been since the, well, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we're preaching from the Narrative Lectionary, which is a collection of readings that's a little different from the Revised Common Lectionary that is most often used in Reformed Protestant churches. This lectionary, the lessons come sort of chronologically in the Bible. So we started with Genesis, and we're going to move on through the Bible. We will make a big leap come Advent and get ready for the arrival of Jesus once again. But for these early weeks, we're in Old Testament stories, and this week we have a story from Exodus. It is perhaps one of the best-known stories of the Bible, and we're going to do it three times over, (laughs) both with this reading and then in the children's time, and then you'll hear another rendition of it from me. Um, this, this translation comes from Robert Alter, who is a retired, now retired professor of linguistics at Cal Berkeley, who just completed his entire translation of Hebrew scriptures. And his, as I always say this now, his translation, I think, is a little bit more in keeping with Hebrew grammar, the cadence and the language throws us off a little bit to have us rethink this story that we have heard for years and years and years. So open your minds and your hearts to God's presence in this story given to us. And a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the sons of Israel are too many and too vast for us. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when any war occur, they actually join our enemies and fight against us and get out of the land. And they set over them forced labor foremen to abuse them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread, and the more they came to loathe the Israelites. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with crushing labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard service, with mortar and brick and every work in the field and all the crushing work they performed. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shipra and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you deliver the Hebrew women and look on their birth stool, if it is a boy, you shall put him to death. And if it is a girl, she may live. And the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. And they let the children live. And a man of the house of Levi took a wife, a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with resin and pitch, and she placed the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the banks of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maidens walked along by the riverside, and she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. And she opened it and saw the child, and behold, it was a lad weeping. And she pitied him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nursing woman of the Hebrews that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, 
take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became a son to her. And she called his name Moses and said, For from the water I drew him out. This is the word of the Lord. What a truly great story this is. Pharaoh is threatened and makes chaos. A frightened mother makes an ark to save her child. And yes, it is called an ark in Hebrew, reminding us of what Noah used to save his family. And in the same way, an infant is born to save his people. Then a princess finds a baby and an older sister brokers a deal. A baby is saved and a tyrant is foiled. It is a perfect story with great roles for girls, I might add, which doesn't happen all that often in the Bible. This story is set about 350 years after Joseph died, Jacob's youngest favored son. After he died, he was buried and mummified. That's what it says in Genesis, which kind of signals the total Egyptianization of the Hebrew people. They had become enmeshed in society, and then somehow through the generations, they fell from grace. And rather than having one of theirs be one of Pharaoh's assistants, they were then slaves. Life for the Hebrews was hard. So as we begin, I'd ask you to notice two things about this story. First, the main characters are young people. And as the Reverend Anna Carter Florence points out, their parents weren't around. This is important because the story is partly about what happens when young people are in charge. Good things. Good things. Second, without this story, there will be no liberation for the people of Israel. There will be no Moses. There will be no Exodus. There will never be an Israel at all. There won't be anything unless the parents get off the stage and the young people begin to set things in motion. So we have two dramatic roles for girls. A beautiful princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, she was given the name Bithia through the ages, and a very responsible older sister, Miriam. You could choose either role if you like. They're both very good parts, even for the guys who are listening out there. Just use your imagination a little bit. You could be Pharaoh's daughter dipping your toes in the cool green water, or you could be Moses' older sister alone in the reeds keeping watch over the miniature ark by day and by night. You could be the powerful princess or the smart and resourceful sister. Like I said, you can't lose. They're both very strong characters. And while scripture doesn't tell us how old they were, whether they were teenagers or 20-somethings or even younger, what it does tell us is that each of them had a deep inner yearning just waiting to be unleashed. Each of them was ready to set aside what she should do and work together on what they might do, which is what happens when you find yourself down in the reeds. Two other women are mentioned as well. 
the handmaids or the slave girls, Shepra, which means beauty, and Pua, which means fragrant blossom. They have pretty important roles themselves. So one more look at the story is important for us. This story is very familiar to us, but you know how it is that you hear scripture differently every time around. So let's recall how it was that the girls in this story lived it, with the parents not around, which is in itself a pretty interesting interpretive lens. Read scripture as if your elders are not around. Read scripture as if it just asks you and your own conscience to deal with it. So remember the larger context that we're in. It's Egypt now, which is a world superpower, and the Hebrews are oppressed as slaves, and the Hebrew population is growing. There are enough Hebrews around to make Pharaoh feel threatened, worried that soon these people will be as numerous as his own. You go into the city and you hear as much Hebrew as you hear Egyptian. So Pharaoh thinks up an unspeakably evil plan to thwart them. He targets the boys. Every Hebrew boy that is born, Pharaoh orders, is to be exterminated on sight. Just pitch him into the Nile. Pharaoh knows if you target the boys of those you want to dominate, you will eventually exterminate them. Moses, of course, is a boy, and so his mother did what she could do. She hid him for a while, but babies grow. And when she could not hide him anymore, Moses' mother, Jochebed, we find out later, in about six chapters from now, we find out her name. This daughter of Levi does a sacramental and saving act. She takes a bunch of reeds, coats and molds them with river mud, and makes a snug little ark for her three-month-old son. It is a courageous and symbolic act designed to save a life as well as to bear witness. And it is heartbreakingly limited. A small ark can't save a child for long. He has one day, maybe two, before he will die of exposure. Anybody who finds this ark will get the mother's message loud and clear. This is what it's come to in Egypt. Just take a look. An ark with an infant, it's all I could do for my child. All I could do for him was give him a day or two. With that, Jochebed leaves the scene. Maybe she was like Hagar, who couldn't bear to watch her baby Ishmael die in the desert back in Genesis. We don't know. But what we do know is that it is the older sister's time, Miriam, to take over from here. This is what big sisters do. They watch when the parents have to go. They report back. It might not be what she chose to do, but it is her job as part of the family. It was this older sister's job to stand at a distance and see what happens to her brother. First to wait in the reeds and then to come home. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter appears. She has a benign agenda. She goes to the river to take a bath, to get away from it all. That's really all. She needs to get away from the court, the publicity, the pressure, the pedestal. Being beautiful can be a very tough job, but that's what princesses are for. It is their job as royalty. It was this princess's job especially to take her slave girls to go to the river and to anoint her lovely skin because she needed to look good that afternoon. She needed to bathe in the reeds and then just get home. 
So there they are, these two girls in the reeds. Two girls who know what they are supposed to do. Hide and watch, bathe and dress. That's it. But as you know, the reeds are a watery, slippery, in-between sort of place. It is muddy and murky and hard to find your footing. And who knows where the deep water really starts? Anything can happen down in the reeds to upset your balance. And on this day, something did. And you know what it was. The princess found the baby. The Egyptian princess found the Hebrew baby. And you know what she was supposed to do with it. And she did too. And the older sister knew as well. So now what? What do you do with a baby in an ark down in the reeds at the river's edge? And the parents, even your parents, are nowhere to be found. The princess knew what her father would have done, or at least how the law was written. If this was a Hebrew male child, and it was, she was just to tip that ark over and let the baby tumble into the water. At the very least, she was supposed to close the lid and give the ark a little push and send it on down the river for the crocodiles to deal with. That's what the law required, like it or not. And she was supposed to uphold the law. Big sister Miriam knew what her mother would have wanted. If someone found the baby, no matter who it was, she was supposed to stay in her hiding place so she wasn't seen, it wouldn't be caught, and then she was just to report back to her mother all that had happened. That's what was required. She was supposed to just try and survive. Two girls in the reeds with a basket and a little baby between them. And then things began to look a little different from where they stood, knee deep in the water down in the reeds. It was their own eyes that saw what was going on and their own minds then made up the decision what to do. The princess saw what she saw and said what she said. This, she said, must be one of the Hebrews' children. Sometimes the truth is the most radical thing you can say. Just to name it, what you see right in front of you. That baby left for hours in the hot sun, left to die. Just telling the truth about it is huge. Seeing it, knowing it is real, knowing what it means. This must be one of the Hebrew children because no other mothers are reduced to this, making little arcs to float in the Nile, trying to save their babies from a torrent of hate. One truth calls out another, especially when you're in the reeds, in the thick of it all. One girl stammering out the truth about what she sees invites another girl to speak up. One girl pausing over unspeakable evil encourages another to stand with her. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, says the princess, realizing the obvious but allowing herself some responsibility as well. And then the sister got an idea. Do you want me to find a nurse among the Hebrew women, she asked, coming out of her hiding place? Do you want, to, want me to find someone to nurse that child for you? And just like that, they had a plan, a plan to save one life, no matter what their parents thought of it. And it was about the craziest plan that you could think of to take baby Moses back to his Hebrew mother for a few years and tell everyone that it's just fine because this was Pharaoh's daughter after all. But they did it and they got away with it. 
And when Moses was three years old, the princess actually adopted him. She took him into the palace and raised him there with her father down the hall. And Lord knows what he thought about this whole arrangement. Little Moses sitting in his booster's seat at the royal table or riding his Toys R Us chariot through the throne room. Scripture never says a word about that. But as I said, this is not a story about the parents and doing what they told their girls to do, even if this dad is the Pharaoh. This is a story about the young people doing whatever crazy thing they could dream up together to get that little baby out of the reeds. So now I'm wondering what this story means for us. After all, it really is one of the first stories that we ever learned in Sunday school. It is another flannel graph classic story, a building block of the Judeo-Christian tradition with timeless truths for all. There are not a lot of new revelations to be drawn from this story. And that's what makes this story, I think, all the more powerful. What was true for them then is also true for us now, right? So what are our lessons? I think there are three, quickly. First, we begin in the reeds and we draw salvation from the waters. This happens both figuratively and literally. Maybe this is something that wouldn't have been mentioned 20 years ago or 50, much less 2000, but if our salvation, our lasting health and healing comes from the waters, whether it be through Moses or Jesus or through our baptisms, there is some meaning in keeping those waters clean. I don't think I'm inappropriately stretching the meaning of the salvation story to extend to our stewardship of the waters from which we draw life. Being aware of the life that we draw from water is essential. It is no longer something that is to be taken for granted, ignored, or dismissed. The environmental realities about the need for water and clean water as a source for life is very real for all of us. We all depend on clean water and share responsibilities for keeping it as clean as we can. Second, this is a story about the least among us, about refugees, foreigners, non-citizens. How can it not be? Later in life, Moses himself has an identity crisis when he discovers his true identity is not Egyptian. This is a story about helping others, even if they are not little Moseses in waiting. It is about telling the truth as you see it, being down in the midst of the reeds, not from the height of a drone, but right in the muck of the waters. Even later in life, after Moses learns of his own identity, he identifies with the victim the disadvantaged, the oppressed. At the risk of his own comfort and even his life, he never stood idly by as someone was being hurt. These young girls stepped up to do what they could do too. And what they did mattered, not just for this one life, but for all time. So finally, this is a story about each of our abilities to make a difference. It is not just a fairy tale story about a miraculous salvation of a heroic figure and Moses beating the odds time and time again. It's not that way because Moses did not do it alone. Although we never hear again about the full cast of characters in this story, about Bithia and Shipra and Pua, though we do hear about Miriam a few times over, none of this would have happened without their doing their part. This is a story of how God's love grows. 
It starts down in the reeds with an unexpected interruption and a presence that has to be acknowledged. God's liberation can start with two girls and one really crazy idea, or some other way. But it most always starts small, maybe even with making peanut butter sandwiches. And we're going to hear about peanut butter sandwiches and small things, small steps in Smith Hall after the service with our friends from Uncuffed Ministries. Miracles happen one by one, and then they grow. And this is a story that we just don't take for granted, but we allow to live again in our lives and in our ministry together as Christ people here. With willing hearts and ready hands and eyes that can see what's going on down among the reeds, we have the opportunity to begin to write a new chapter of God's people together here 